Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Dr Simon Rudkin, an economics senior lecturer at Swansea University. His research focuses on new insights into societal challenges such as welfare, the internet revolution and poorer communities' access to supermarkets. Simon, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. It's good to see you. Thank you. Can you summarise for us, just before we really begin, um, what your research is about? My research really focuses on the way that, as economists, we can work across disciplines and we can work with the relevance of economics to the wider society. So often we will develop new theory, new modelling, particularly new data, and that helps us to understand more of the world. However, the more we understand about the world, the more we then need to analyse and we need to call upon the collective perspectives and the collective expertise of academics. And my research is about bridging those gaps, bringing advances from, say, data science, artificial intelligence into economics and then out to the challenges that we face. And what sort of places do you draw your examples from or what places do you research? Is this mainly UK-based or is it global? Um, My research is really driven by the context. Uh, at the moment, based in Swansea, there are issues around productivity that are actually getting me quite excited to look at. There's issues around transportation and networking. But as I've moved around the world, you know, I've been in China, for example, there it's a different issue. They're looking at development and, and the challenges of dealing with a transition to capitalism. In the North, for example, there's issues around deprivation welfares. Some of those do resonate here. And I think that's the point. Sometimes even diverse contexts do feed into um, other applications. And what we really need to do more of is learn from rather than isolate out uh, different silos. So just as I've talked about you know, multidisciplinarity and, and the importance of communicating to face challenges, so it's important to recognise that the lessons we learn might come from somewhere very different. And just to summarise, what are the, some of the, the big challenges that you focus on? So my big challenge, I think, does focus on inequality. I think it's inequality of opportunity, whether it's inequality of outcome. And sometimes it's about uncovering the hidden inequalities. And one of the exciting things that we'll be talking about when talking about my research is the way that data science and modeling really gets at some of those things that perhaps are more hidden. Some we're gonna, you know, I look at Brexit, for example, some of the voting patterns there. We look at the way that people who seemingly could be quite happy or should be happy actually feel isolated for just the very smallest of reasons and how we can start to get more at that if we embrace work that's being developed in biology or um, in chemistry and engineering. And I promise we'll pick up on all of those themes as we go through the podcast. Absolutely, yeah. Um, You've talked about China a bit and obviously you said your themes are applicable in lots of different ways. Does this mean that you get to move around and travel quite a lot? So in my career, I've worked for many years actually in China and therefore I have a lot of uh, Chinese collaborators that was an excellent opportunity um, and I do still go over there to to visit and to continue those collaborations I think yeah the global perspectives it really is important I think often in Britain we're, we can be guilty of looking inward when actually some of the answers and some of the things we need and I'm not going to spend too long on things like high-speed trains are actually kind of pushing ahead in places like China I know that you've said that economics is embedded in all that we do. I kind of understand that, but what do you mean? So often when you face people, they think, well, what is economics? 
and you give them simple examples and you think, well, when we're making choices, we choose based on a lot more than monetary outcomes. So, in fact, as we're recording this, we've just had the biggest winner of the uh, Euro Millions. This was a UK citizen, we don't know yet who, who's won that. And they've won a massive prize. And yet, logically, you pay your pound, £2.50 so for the uh, ticket with the expectation you will lose the £2.50. The logical thing for, in order for the lottery companies to make profits, etc., is that that money will be lost. And yet we do it. And we do it because we actually quite like that excitement and that thought that one day it could be you. And that's economics because it's not financial. It's not rational to buy a lottery ticket. It doesn't make sense. But actually, that choice to buy it is driven by something more. And economics fundamentally studies choices. It takes those individual decisions at the micro level or the policy decisions at a macro level and drives it yeah, with something that's a lot more than just a number. And, and that's why I think it touches everything because everything involves choice. People might hear the word or the term economics and think automatically money. And obviously there's something in that. They might think models, economic models, but it's about human behavior as well then you're saying. Yeah. So the idea of money, of course, because if you talk about happiness it's very quick to equate happiness and money, and, and there is a strong link. But ultimately, we know that if you I don't know, give people things for free, they won't take an infinite amount. If you ask somebody, would they like, ask our students, would they like a thousand pounds, they would be really quite excited about that. If you go into business and you're teaching top executives, which obviously the students become, you ask them, well, in that future, would you care? And then the thousand pounds suddenly is worth a lot less. And so implicitly, that utility sort of trade-off with, with money is there. And yes, money is important. And yes, it's the thing that we understand. It's a language we understand. But it's certainly not the way I think that you should think about economics and why economics is relevant, therefore. Tell us more about happiness then and how that as a concept or as something to study is probably sometimes a bit of a slippery idea. Well, I think when you start to talk about happiness, you then get into all issues around measurement. Measuring happiness is one of the real challenges facing economists. And, and there we can speak to sociologists and psychologists and things, and they can help. And I know that we're working with people in Swansea that are doing that. However, what we need to think more of and why I think as economists we're often accused of having abstract models is that we can start thinking of functional forms. We can think like of an increasing function as something that increases happiness, where happiness is higher at the top of the function. We can think about that and we can draw that and we can solve it mathematically and we can do. But measuring is always a nightmare. And, and what's really fascinating about economics is we could be sitting here in 50 years' time and we'll still be discussing how do you measure happiness. We've, I don't think we'll ever get a, an answer and maybe as soon as we do, there'll be a new technology or something that comes along that redefines it again. And in that sense, I think we need to be avoid the distraction of trying to measure happiness, but we understand it conceptually and intuitively. And what I try and impress on the students is that, yes, you know, you are aware that happiness is increasing or whatever, but you don't need a number. Is it too crude to summarise that then in the sort of cliche that there's more to life than money? No, I think that's pretty fair. And I think what I'm saying is economics as a study of more than money, of course, is addressing that gap. And I think you know, that is one of those cliches. It's one of those things that gets bandied about, about economics. And if you think that, please do go and check out actually what economists are doing, because economists are not just studying money. And that includes monetary economists. 
again, I'm sure we'll pick up on some of this um, as we go through and as, as we keep speaking. But let's just talk about you for a second. Why, why Swansea? How, what brought you here? I think when you're looking at universities, you're looking at something that's dynamic, that's evolving, and that's actually at the heart of sort of a really exciting economic position. So on a global context, you're seeing this change in, in city development. You're seeing South Wales going through this process of moving away from the heavy industries. We are next to Port Talbot with the steelworks. And we know the stories around that. We're at the, near the valleys of the coal mines. Swansea was big in copper. These are all changes. And once Swansea is kind of on the cutting edge of change, and Swansea is one of the places that's going to be leading, if you like, the regeneration of South Wales. I mean, the, the Cardiff is a little bit safer. That's a capital that's there. Swansea is really addressing that challenge. And it's an exciting kind of dynamic place to be because it is at the front, front and we're here on a Bay campus, by the way, that absolutely embodies everything about um, facing those, those future challenges. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. So is that one of the things that actually brought you here? How interesting and dynamic Swansea is as a, as a study? Yes, because, you know, as economists, I think we are, we like to think we're relevant to everything and we like to be part of that. So, so to be part of uh, development is, is really good. And to be a, in a position where yeah, our work can have influence and all the way up from the basic ideas that come out of our students and, and living that experience is really, really, really fascinating. Um, as I say, I've, I've lived that in the Chinese side, um, in their development and watch the city I was in there growing massively overnight. That probably won't happen here. But again, it's, it is. It's, you want to be somewhere that's interesting to be, as well as academically excellent. Which city in China was that? So I was working primarily in a city called Suzhou, which is Jiangsu province. It's, well, it's 20 minutes by high-speed train from, uh, from Shanghai. It's really embodying. It was one of their first open cities. They had collaboration with Singapore to build an industrial park. So when I first went, we were kind of on the edge of the city. By the end, the city stretched to Shanghai. And 20 minutes on a high-speed train is like to Bristol from Swansea. I mean, that's, that's kind of expansion of the growth that we were talking. That's where I was. It's an incredibly dynamic place. It's always changing. Eh, well, maybe Swansea will get there. That must have been a real experience for you, though. It was. I mean, everything is just done so much faster. It's so so different and it's it, it's like i say it's like a live lab and you're trying to measure it and you're trying to capture and if you said capturing happiness is a challenge capturing that sort of level of development in what we would like to think is a statistically rigorous and you know economically proper way incredible challenge because you can't control one thing while the other thing's changing and mm. yeah. and you must have been experiencing things on a personal basis on a, on a day-to-day basis that was actually uh indirectly feeding into the kind of research that you do of course um and it does whenever I would encourage anybody to go out, experience new cultures, be involved in new things, because it does broaden your perspective and it does take you away from some of those kind of myopic views that that really are most like saying that economics is focused on money. These kind of things that you need to get away from and start to challenge. And then you become, I think, a better economist as a result. So, yes, I mean, I, you, everything from the food to the to the noise levels at night, everything, the whole working day, everything is different. But then that's fascinating and really something, as I say, get out and do because that's important. And did you come from China straight to Swansea? No. Um, most recently, I was at the University of Manchester, um, 
which has been was my university when I studied. Um, so my my training came from there, my PhD is from there. Um, so I have that kind of classical training. And I think almost coming from that classical training, you you really want to get out into the relevance. And I think that's something often understated. You can put a lot of importance on mathematics. And I think if economists start to do that, they perhaps fade away from facing the challenges that we face. And actually can start to lose some of the relevance of what's going on. And, and that, again, reminded me of, I think, the importance of being somewhere like Swansea, where the mathematics is excellent, the rigour is there, but you're always living and focused on the, on the broader challenge. I say this with a little bit of hesitation, but let's talk about politics, because mm, okay. you've done work on Brexit, haven't you? Yes. I mean, as I said, what I'm really keen to do is show that economics has this relevance, that, that what we can do with our new methodologies and our new technologies is really understand issues. And without doubt, as we sit here, the biggest issue is Brexit. Everything that's dominating everything is Brexit. And economics has so much to offer, whether it's the simple game theory that tells us that everything until the final decision is noise. And as economists, we should therefore probably ignore it. <laughs> and we, we can laugh about that because... Frankly, we spend so long watching the television, watching somebody say, we're not going to give you a deal. Somebody say, we want something better. And yet you know that somewhere in the middle is the reality. And we will not find out that reality until a long time later. But that's not my research. That's just uh, what we teach in economics. And I think, again, why economics should be telling us just turn the TV off, go out and experience the world a little bit, because there's going to be a lot of noise between now and whatever date it's going to be mm, that sure. the final decision is taken. So my research doesn't look at that. My research looks at why we are where we are. Why did we get a vote to leave? Now, a lot has been talked about this from using some simple techniques that it was to do with people who are less educated. It was to do with people who felt left behind by the progress of, of the economy. And certainly it's been a London-centric economy now for, for some time, but that's not always the case. And you see cities like Manchester, South Wales is itself in a regener regeneration. My research was thinking, well, can we dig beneath that? Can we get something more? And that's where working with um, people from the mathematics department, computational scientists, who have developed new ways of understanding data, we've been able to say, well, actually, if we combine all these characteristics, where was the leave vote? Where was it? Why did it come through? And what we found, quite interestingly, is that, in fact, if we put in like a multiple dimensional plot of the data, those leave voters are very similar. So if you imagine a scatter plot, you can easily see pictures and you see shapes and you understand what, what's there. What we're doing is saying, well, let's create a multiple dimensional scatter plot. You're going to have to describe to me yeah. what that is. I'm so, <laughs> you know, uh, the danger is you start doing hand waving. But, you know, you know that if you draw a load of dots on a scatter plot and they all form an upward sloping line, you can say there's an upward sloping line. If you throw some more dots off into the space, you can say there's outliers or whatever. You, 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 okay. We intuitively talk about shape when we look at a scatter plot. And this is like basic statistics. So what we thought, well, if we can represent more axes, so if you make it three dimensions, then you could talk about the shape. And you could probably, as a human, see a three-dimensional shape. It's quite, look, if have a look at one, it's, it's not easy to see the depth on, on a piece of paper, but you can try and infer it. And so that allows you to talk about three axes. So instead of just talking about X and Y, you can now talk about a Z factor. And they say, well, look, these people have got high X, high Y, and then they've got low Z. These people have got, you can make, you know, you can start to make stories. And what, what might the X, Y, and Z be in the, I'm sure you're coming to this. Okay, but. so in the Brexit case, we could be talking about, say, let's say qualifications, income, and we do it on a constituency aggregate level. So it could be um, the actual proportion of people who vote for Brexit. 
It could be that we look at um, qualifications, income, and something simple like the number of cars households have or whatever. So, so we could think of three things and then we could draw that. The point is that we know from our theory and we know from our experience that, that life's much more complicated than that. So what's great is that here at Swansea, they've been developing a data topology, it's called, because it's shaped topology, methodology that allows us to visualize multiple dimensions. So my research takes these multiple dimensions and creates a nice little two-dimensional plot that shows it. And what you suddenly realize is that actually those leaves and its leave voting constituencies occupy a very small part of the space, very intensely, very similar. Yes, it's towards the low end of qualifications, but it's not very low. Yes, it's towards the low end of income, but it's not very low. So we can understand why the two-dimensional association said, you know, low income, Brexit, low qualification, Brexit. But what's really interesting is that when you start to look at where the constituencies who voted Remain are, they're really spread out. So you've got this really kind of core Brexit vote in that graph and this representation. And yet you've then faced with all this diverse spread across the rest of the picture of these Remain voting constituencies. And that means that if you were trying to give a message, trying to promote going out and voting for Remain, it's a real challenge because some of those messages will upset the other part of the space. And trying to manage that was always going to be a challenge. And I think that's something that gets lost because it seems easy, doesn't it? Low qualification, vote for Brexit. People who are highly qualified, vote to Remain. That's easy. It means you just appeal to people's qualifications. You give them a message that says, you know, you, you, you think you're clever, please vote for Remain. You know? I, I guess qualifications and education don't always necessarily tally with intelligence, do they? No, and I guess that's part of the reason why the actual picture is a little bit more complicated than the uh, than the, the, those headlines and those basic analyses um, suggest. And and as I say, this is where data and data science really collide with economics and allow us to perhaps put into quantity some of those things that our theories and our intuition has been telling us. It still doesn't address your happiness question, but uh, if we get a measure, we can at least visualise it. I'm going to just take us back a couple of steps here to talk about the data that you've been collecting on these constituencies yes. and these voters. What kind of data are we talking about? Because I thought one of the difficult things with Brexit was actually to identify who had voted in which way. Okay, so for that particular um, paper, we've used a very simple data set. So it's actually data from the census 2011. It's publicly available through the British Election Study. So anybody listening can go and download that. Um, there is behind that, big surveys of individual behaviours. And one of the things we would like to do as an extension, of, of course, is to extend into that. But you're always relying on people's honesties, people's accurate behaviour, reporting and things. And, and again, this is what we, we sort of hit on, that you need to have a critical perspective. You need to evaluate. You can't assume that because the data says something that it's right, because the computer says something that this is what we should be following. This is not how economists should operate. It's not how economics at Swansea is, and it's not how you know, the next generation need to need to be approaching things. It's dangerous. So what's your what's your take-home message for people about your research and Brexit? What do you want people to actually think about when it comes to this ongoing political process? Well, I think that, you know, there's no, you can't say something is right or wrong. You can't start talking about, well, we should be encouraging people to vote for Remain or whatever. What we should be encouraging people to do, and particularly when they're designing campaigns and they want to promote messages, is to make sure those messages come across effectively so that we don't get to a situation where people say, oh, this message wasn't communicated right. We need to 
go back and this campaign and some of the mud that gets slung around on on things about the campaign you know that's dangerous and so i don't want people to think that from this research they could conclude anything about what happened this is not causal research it's not trying to say that it would have been better if the vote went a different way what it is saying is that there's a real need to to embrace you know data science to embrace the new and to understand more before going off and designing strategies because it would appear that the remain strategy was not as tight and was not going to be as easy as the the leave one so is this about giving strategists and policymakers the tools to not target, that's the wrong word, but to um, tailor their message to certain electorates in the most effective way. Yeah, I mean, and that's it. And, and I think we can say target because this is where we talk to marketing. So firms are doing that. And if you look at Facebook, for example, they have so much data around individual characteristics and then they are selling marketing. YouTube is selling marketing, etc. So using our techniques, we believe we actually have something to offer and um, they should be doing that. But really that understanding about where the targets is and and the fact that we can and this is this is a new thing that digital allowance to a really target people is a new thing the fact that we've got that data and we can use it is is really saying now let's speak to economists let's speak to marketing people let's speak and let's understand and yeah if if there's something use it and then later the economists will have to come back and evaluate whether that has turned out to be good for happiness or bad for happiness because when we talk about marketing, we get into another rabbit hole of, well, hang on a minute, is that a good thing? Do we want to have target marketing? And, y- yes, and, and do you find yourself having to make these moral judgments sometimes? Yes. Yes, you do, and then implicitly you do, of course, and whenever you put out research. So I think that's where you have to take a moral responsibility, and even from the first day of studying, you take that moral on board as well, and you almost have to remember that everything you say needs to be framed. And... Actually, again, that's why economics is important because if you look at money and you look at computers and you look at maths and you look at the outcomes, you've, you've got to have that human element. And in fact, what I tell my students is that, you know, one of the things you will do is you will go out and you will forever be an economist, forever giving that human element to whatever the situation is that you face. So being incredibly deep in the, in the maths, well, that maths will get outdated. You know, we didn't know about data science when I was doing my undergraduate. There will be new things, artificial intelligence, etc. What you need is that awareness and that kind of social responsibility, that, that moral, if you like, compass as well. And you apply that, and therefore, as an economist, you understand what it's telling you, you understand what the data's telling you, you understand what the other disciplines are telling you, and you turn that into something that actually brings welfare, which is what we study, not money. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swans University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. Before we move on, can you just say, I don't want to make you repeat yourself, but just say a little bit more about how those factors in terms of Brexit voting constituencies and Remain voting constituencies sometimes correlate with one another more in the, in the leave areas? Yeah, so, I mean, we know that this idea of left behind is a, is a narrative. It comes from the idea that the educational opportunities are not there. If the educational opportunity is not there, then of course you don't have the job opportunities. If you don't have the job opportunities, you're not going to be in the higher uh, ranking jobs. If you're not in the high ranking jobs, you're probably not going to be on the high ranking incomes. If you're not in the high ranking incomes, then you can't afford the cars. If you're not, so the whole thing is 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 interrelated. And again, I think that's one of the big things about our approach. 
we're not looking at variables on a two-dimensional scatter plot in isolation. We're taking the whole space together and saying the whole space interaction is really important. And again, I think, I think intuitively it's a real message from our research that I think should resonate and it should show how actually working together you can get real value and you know, face these challenges that we've, we've talked of already. So. We can't have an economist on uh, without asking a little bit about the, the future of the UK economy. I know it might not be your, yeah. your bread and butter, but yeah. how do you think leaving the European Union is going to affect the British economy in the short and medium term? Well, there's two effects. There's the uncertainty effect. And uncertainty is kind of the biggest enemy. We talk about predicting the future. When you're a business, you are trying to make orders for your supply chains and you're going well into the future. It, it, depending on the industry, there's a production process. You've got to, so you, uncertainty, I think, is the biggest enemy. And the more we go through this uncertainty, the more, you know, the more difficult it's going to be. Shocks are a problem. Whenever something comes along and completely throws you off, um, that's an issue too. But I think one of the things with Brexit, and I, you know from recent news that you know, the Bank of England, for example, are revising down their forecast of the negative impact because we know it's coming. We have got used to it. And, and, and this is it. Humans can cope with lots of things. And, and who knows when we're actually going to leave? You know, we sit here possibly three weeks away, but who knows? Um, so yeah, look, there's going to be a negative impact. You are shocking things. We don't know yet whether it's going to be no deal. We don't know, therefore, whether people are going to be adult about how they deal with things. Are we going to be slapping tariffs on each other left, right, and center? You know, it's not rational. It makes no sense for us to put tariffs on goods coming in in this because we don't want tariffs on our goods going out we could agree today to have a free trade agreement we know that europe will not talk about trade until we've left and as economists we probably know why that is as well because they know and we all know that actually it's probably going to be a free trade deal but could i forecast that are they going to be adults are we going to start who knows because it's all jingoistic political noise basically and i you know so what's going to be the impact probably it'll take some time for us to all grow up and realise, you know, let's just get on with a positive relationship, you know. So it's the human element again. It's the human element. It's always the human element. And politics is one of those really kind of human elements because you've got self-interest, you've got party interest, you've got all these issues of identity, you've got soundbiting and trying to get into other people's self-identification. Fascinating discipline, but, uh, yeah, a danger of kind of derailing the underlying logic which says, you know, the more you bring certainty, the more you understand, and the more you understand, the less negative we have to suffer. But let's see. Staying with politics just for a moment more. Um, I've read that certain political parties, I think the Liberal Democrats are one, have been using data to profile UK voters. Yes. Um, what's all that about? Well, if we take sort of my approach to an extreme, then of course what you would try and do is identify the people who are likely to vote for you, where your vote's been strong in the past. And 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 let's not pretend that this is something new, by the way. Um, I've my own involvement with with political parties, for example, know that they've been keeping data as long as they could write data down. And uh, all that happens now is because of the internet we have click behavior that we didn't used to have before we used to have to observe other things or get people to fill in surveys or, or whatever so i think they're all using it they're all using it in more and more agile intelligent ways and you know we can again go off down cambridge analytica the influence well i can't say the influence of russia i mean did russia have an influence we can go down all sorts of questions and people are trying to do all i would say is again we kind of expect that this is going to be done and it's going to be done in new novel ways and as 
whichever discipline, we've got to understand that and we've got to, we've got to bring it through. Are people right to feel very uncomfortable about it, though? This idea that their data is being collected, information about them is being stored by third parties? Um, I think in answer to that, yes. And I think we do naturally because sometimes this is where technology races ahead of us and where sometimes we're, we're very quick. Think, oh, it would be brilliant if we could do that. If, like, so we've got situations where companies maybe need a, a worker for a little bit and, and then you could have an Uber app and, and now there is an Uber job app and that launched last week in uh, Chicago, I think it was. It's certainly in the US. All the time, we can think about oh, little solutions and little gains, little wins. So for businesses who just wanted a temporary worker, brilliant. For workers, what if we all had to go to that and we couldn't have any certainty? We think zero-hour contracts is an issue. Now move to a situation where we supply our labour through Uber. So there is a kind of sometimes an excitement around new technologies. And actually, again, this is where we come in and say, let's talk about, let's think about those broader economic consequences. And let's frame that in terms of that unease, because of course you should feel uneasy. You, you know, these things have impact. And yet they're probably decisions that have been taken in okay, Uber's head office or whatever, that they're going to go down this route. These are things we should be worried. But then should we be scared? No, we should look at, look at the way that we then portray ourselves. And I sort of teach our students, you know, we do signaling. In the old days, the simply signal you were a good student was that you got a good degree. But now you've got a LinkedIn profile, you've got a Facebook profile, and you need to make sure that, yes, it was exciting to record that particularly exciting night out that you had. And I'm using the word exciting here deliberately to avoid uh, any sort of identification. But the point is, that's now a signal that's out there. And in fact, we can be scared by that or we can embrace it. And, and of course, then it's not just the success of making the degree of success, but it's a success of recognising what that degree is teaching about your other aspects of life. And yeah, and that's scary because you have to think about so much more. It used to be that if people didn't see the uh, particular incident, it, it, you could forget it. You know, what happens stays on uh, tour or whatever. You've suggested in the past that people should be engaging with the news and news outlets critically. What about those economic predictions that you mentioned a moment ago? Should we be treating them with um, caution as well? well so caution, it, you need to be aware and you need to evaluate. You need to think. So one of the biggest things that we, we, we have as humans is, is that ability to think. No matter on what level, no what we know about the subject, we can think, is this good or bad? Is this dangerous? Do we have that initial feeling of unease? So it's like take a genetically modified crops. Brilliant, make new food, resist disease. But ooh, what if it goes wrong? You know, what about those science fiction films that we watched as kids? You know, we have that critical ability and we should be bringing that to these predictions of what's going to happen in exactly the way that we do kind of qualitatively with things, like I say, with, with science. We, you know, like you should be critical. If you accept everything and follow, then the danger is you, you're not challenging, you're not getting the most out of things. So but when, when people go on the news and, and give predictions, they will be hopefully, honestly, what people expect. And let's not forget, you can politicise predictions as well. And, and a lot of the predictions we see are politicised. Um, but be critical, think about it, and yeah, rec in that sense, recognise where they come from as well. Um, but use it. I mean, use all the information. But keep yourself open to different perspectives. Don't just watch one news outlet because you kind of happen to agree with them. You know, keep, keep that because... It's a self-perpetuating circle. They'll be using your data and think, oh, like Guardian readers would like to know that this, and, and therefore they will run predictions that run 
to sell newspapers. And therefore, I don't say go and read The Guardian, The Telegraph, and what, The Independent, and whatever, but try and, try and keep aware and, and remember that everything comes with a perspective and a position. If we could just talk about data models for a second, mm. and particularly, um, I suppose, going back to your work from China. Yeah. Um, stuff you did on targets in Chinese industry. Sounds very interesting. Well, yeah, no, I mean, so obviously China's gone through a massive opening up um, procedure. Um, and part of that has been the privatization of state industry. And that fundamentally changes the model. Because in theory, the state industry is about providing welfare to the workers. It's, it's focused on the broader, broader picture. At the far end of that theory, you've got kind of the private, which is about making money for the shareholders. Of course, we all know that the reality of both of those is somewhere in the middle. Private businesses are very active in the fields of CSR, and our management school will tell you all about the, in fact, the benefits of doing that. Um, we've got research around that. So the process of privatization though, still inevitably involves a change. It involves changes, and part of the question was, was that going to lead to productivity gain, as it in theory should, because there's capitalist incentives to, to productivity. And so a lot of our research there was on that. What we found is that actually, no, actually in some cases the state-owned with the state-owned firms were doing better. And some of that was because they were bigger and, you know, fundamental economics, the economies of scale, the more you produce, the cheaper it is to produce each unit. So fundamental economics was at play there. But a lot of it depended on a lot of other characteristics. And one of the things we're still extending to do is look at how all of that interacted. Same thing, multiple interactions within the space. But what we found is actually, again, don't just assume that you privatise something, it becomes more competitive. At the same time, don't assume that if we nationalise things in the UK, they're suddenly going to become non-competitive. We know that at the extreme end of theory why they should do. But you know, we shouldn't, again, and we can learn, I think, again, what our data and what our research is showing from that Chinese example. Actually, we could probably comment on, like I say, because Labour are openly talking about nationalisation. And maybe, if done right, it's not going to be the, the negative that it could be portrayed. If done wrong, then it goes back to the stereotypes. And so I don't want to comment which way on that would be best to go. But our Chinese data shows that it could go either way. And with the Chinese example, did you do stuff about um, uh, you know, CO2 emissions and things like that as well? So I've got, yes, I've got some work... Uh, that's driven by people who have a much stronger interest in the sort of science of it than than I do, um, where we do look at the way that resources are allocated to the reduction of CO2 because industrialised nations have big issues because the, that industrialised process produces pollution. And China has gone through a process of industrialization more recently than, than the UK did. So China is facing this situation where it's rich, developed cities like Shanghai, like Beijing, were heavily polluted and that's not that's well known these, these are established and therefore they had this kind of clash between all these newly rich people who probably didn't want to breathe in the pollution and then you had these lesser developed regions that were then going to themselves go through so a sort of logical thing is that you move the industry that's polluting into the lesser developed regions that fuels their development the richer regions get to enjoy the cleaner air and my own time reveal that, that is exactly what happened that was my experience when i first went in 2010 Shanghai was very polluted by 2016. It's it's not, but that process of moving them moving west, as it is in China geography, moving west of the pollution activity has its own impact. And so, what our research there, and driven by 
say people with more specialism in these these areas started to wonder well is it right that we move things west do, do we get the economic benefit but you but economics can't just define that financial benefit it's got to define that air quality the life quality the happiness and therefore should we be rebalancing actually and sending some of the pollution back at the ultimate level we need to speak to the engineers and things and work out ways to industrialize with less pollution that's the ultimate answer but of course that's technology that's a different thing and you are dealing on a day-to-day basis as economists with what's in front of you and at the moment most industrial technology pollutes you know we, we hope to move away from that but that's one for science if you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information Something that caught my eye as well is that you've done work on supermarkets and their placements in certain communities. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, this was the original sort of focus of my research, because if we go back to when I sort of first was an undergraduate student, um, the supermarkets were really dominating retail. Now you'd probably talk about online retail and the supermarkets have been in decline. And in fact, you've got things like Aldi, Lidl, etc. These are These have fundamentally changed from where we were. So we had these really powerful organizations and they built this model around car use and people driving to out-of-town supermarkets where they would do their big weekly shop and this has been a fundamental change from the from the high street days from the markets so it's an interesting topic and what had happened simultaneously is we'd started to really flood the green belt with with development and it wasn't going to be possible to keep putting roads and new supermarkets and we, this couldn't go on so you had a situation where supermarkets faced a challenge of location where they were the dominant retail form and simultaneously what had happened is that people with cars would go to supermarkets and people therefore travel out of town and this was fine what about people who couldn't and people who couldn't in sort of the inner city areas and it and again not that generalizing to say these were poor inner city areas these are because richer inner city areas could have their sort of waitrose local or whatever they could have something that was really tailored for them so these poor inner city communities were getting left behind. So people from them were, would drive out to shop and people wouldn't. So there was kind of a health problem. There was a, this is a real challenge. And then thought, well, okay, where do you get cheap fruit? Where do you get cheap vegetables? Where can you get a good diet? And supermarkets. Now, who needs somewhere with some land to plot? Build supermarkets. So what do you do? You take a supermarket, you build it in a poor area. You build it in these deprived communities. That seemed like the answer. Cheap food. Supermarket gets somewhere to build. Actually, they would usually build next to a main arterial road so the people living in the villages could drive past. No problem. This seemed great. And averages was brilliant because if you did like, and my data focuses on a study in Leeds, they said, well, okay. Yeah, average fruit and vegetable consumption has gone up. This is brilliant. But as economists, we need to think, well, yeah, but is it? We know that people have heterogeneous preferences. People are, people, some people like fruit, some people don't like fruit. It's very heterogeneous. So what was actually happening? So we looked again at the data. And this was 10 years after the original studies, and the UK went embarked on a huge policy of, of building supermarkets in these areas. There's over 100 of them. Yeah, what, what, what years are we talking about the, here? The, the study came from 2001. Okay. Um, it was opened by Tony Blair with great fanfare, like this is the future of how we're going to bring health to the these communities. Um, so the data came from there and it was a study, the average thing went up. But we need to be critical. So we did. So my research said, well, okay, let's have a look at the distribution of diet. Let's not just look at the average. And well, no surprise, what we found, 
people who like fruit, people who consume, consume so much more because it was accessible. They could get it. They could, brilliant. Of course, if one end of the average is going right up in order to achieve an average, a small average increase, the other end's going down. So my first paper that published in the leading journal of that field, Environment Planning A, that said, ooh, actually this isn't bringing the health benefit that we thought. So you've approved all of these developments as a heralded policy and actually, no, you've not quite had the impact. So then we started to dig deeper. And these people had kept food diaries. So we thought, well, okay, let's have a look at the other foods. And again, no surprise, in the most recent paper published last year in Food Policy, used the full diary data. People who liked unhealthy ready meals, buy more ready meals. People who liked chocolate, buy more chocolate. So the supermarket with its lower price compared to the convenience store had reinforced behavior. Now, none of this is groundbreaking in terms of intuition. However, it was all missed by the people who studied averages. And because it was missed, actually, we probably made quite a big policy mistake there. We, we created these organizations that were reinforcing bad behavior as a way of encouraging good behavior. And in fact, you know, the discipline there has gone on to say you look at things like farmers' markets and you look at genuinely ways that you only bring in fruit and vegetables. My research doesn't do that. My research was to say you need to think about this again and you know, go away and do it. Um, but really, as economists, again, you've just got to be critical. You've got to think about more than averages and you've got to think about that, that collective. So what's the lesson to learn about supermarkets then? It's really to use them wisely. So it's like anything, you should always use things wisely, you should always think. So yes, the supermarket, they needed somewhere to build, it is a way of intervening, they do provide fruit and vegetables, it is cheaper than a farmer's market. So then you've got to think, well, okay, now how do I get people who go to the supermarket to buy fruit and vegetables? And that's where you need to get the behavioural scientists involved, I, and the psychologists and things. I can't tell you the answer to that one. You know, it could be financial incentives. It could be some other incentives. We can say as economists, you need an happiness incentive, whether that is money-based happiness, whether it means somehow educating people to like fruit. I don't know. And that's individualistic. But it's about using things to your advantage and understanding and learning and working with people to, to meet those challenges. I can see there's a link here, but you've also done quite a lot of research on welfare, haven't yes. you? Yes. So how do they link and what have you done? So it's, it's really all about that same thing. If economists measure utility and they measure happiness, then welfare is kind of the embodiment of that. So we like people to be happy. We want to know. And one of the biggest things we can do is ask people, well, are you happy? This so-called self-reported welfare. And that's a good measure. That's a simple measure, but it's, you know, and it's subjective, but it's, it's there. So we started looking, well, what about these people who are not happy? Who are they? Now, it's obvious if you've not got opportunities, you'll be unhappy. If you've not got income, you would be unhappy. If you've not, not got health, you would be unhappy. So that's easy. In terms of univariate-type associations, we're, we're all sort of nodding heads. Yeah, this is all good. The point is, what's within that? So we started to study it, and we said, well, okay, let's take all these variables that we think are related. Let's throw in a few more variables that don't seem obviously related, but you never know. Throw them into our model and see what comes out. What is in that multidimensional space? And what we found was quite interesting. So using some data from Wales, we found that people with their own homes should be happy. Retired, so the newly retired, so they no longer have the pressures of going to work, they should be happy. They're educated, so by sort of association, they should be happy. They've got their own cars, so they're mobile. All these things seem to indicate happiness. And yet 
within the data, we spotted this little group in that space that were not happy. So we said, well, what's the variable? What, what is it? Turns out it was the fact that they didn't feel they had the kind of computer skills. They felt left behind by the internet. So where we talked earlier about people being left behind economically, these people felt left behind by technology. And so actually, to in, from a policy perspective, it's quite easy. We needed to provide internet training, you know, computer skills courses for these people. And from a policy side, that was quite nice because, of course, those people, they'll go to libraries, they would like that kind of interaction. It can be at that level because they've got the qualifications, they're fundamentally, you know. So you could easily tailor a very simple solution for that. So welfare, that's one example. Welfare is also so intertwined with people's characteristics. And in that case, like I say, computers didn't necessarily bring welfare. You could enjoy computers and be unhappy. You could not enjoy computers and just feel really happy that you didn't engage with them. And, and, and therefore, in itself, statistically, it's never been kind of associated. But bring it in and understand, and that's what we did. And I think, again, this is what we need to do. As, as policy-based economists, we need to be getting out and thinking more broadly and talking to people and understanding what they say. And then, yeah, and actually, with our data technique, we can start to do that. And Swansea really kind of what we are leading because it's our technique. I'm, st I'm still intrigued by how did you identify that small group of people who weren't happy? Is this just from behavioural questionnaires or, or what? So, yeah, that's actually a public survey. It's the uh, okay. National Survey for Wales. Okay. Um, it's undertaken with a huge panel of respondents every year. Um, so we just used a year's of data from that. And it asked, one of the questions is, how do you rate your computer skills? What was, you know, age, income, whatever. And then we just plot it in the space. And what we do, we plot all of the variables in the space. And then we take our outcome, in this case, self-reported happiness, and we just color it in. Very simple coloring it in. And then because you've colored it in, you can see, well, hang on, here's a dot. And it's red for low and blue for high. Here's a red dot amongst all this blue. What's that? And then you go and look at it and you click on it. Oh, so these are the people. And, and this is what's different between this blue dot that was really happy people and the red dot that's just immediately next to it in the space. And that's what we're doing. And that's what we're trying to do. And we found that and we said, well, this is the difference. It's, it is purely computer skills and therefore policy easy to solve. Something that really grabbed me is that you talked about thinking about things on a scale yeah. and not um, thinking in terms of left or right when it comes yeah. to politics, but also not thinking in terms of things being right or wrong. Yes. Now, some people might say, but you're academics, you're, you know, many academics are meant to be searching for the truth or something close to the truth. Yeah. And therefore, these concepts of right and wrong are justifiable and reasonable things to talk about. But I'm sure that's not quite what you mean. No. So one of the things I really encourage students to do is to think on scales. So scales are brilliant because what do we know about scales? You can move left and right. You can move up and down. You can move on the scale. So whenever you construct an argument, start with the two extremes and then work out where you are in the middle. And then how would you move one way or the other? What's right and wrong then? That's an ethical judgment. So yes, you know, you can do some maths and it's correct or not correct. And I'll say correct and not correct, not right and wrong. It's correct and not correct. And of course, we're trying to be correct. If you draw a scale of, would you like to score 100%? Yes. That's, a, that's an easy one. The direction to go on that scale is pretty obvious. Work hard, go towards the 100%. But in everything I've talked about, when I talk about scales, I'm not saying you want to be at one end or the other. What I'm saying is it really helps to evaluate things when you start to think, well, where am I? Where would I like to be? Where am I going? If we're moving and, it, and life is dynamic, which way are we going? You know, we hinted earlier about political extremism and that we're nowhere on the extreme end of the extreme scale. But we are moving that way. There is a populism, there is a rise of nationalism, etc. 
we are moving that way. And if we start thinking that way, we can start thinking, well, hang on, do we want to go there? How do we go back? What's the driving force of that? Data can help us understand. Experience helps us understand. But yeah, I do like to think of scales, and I don't like to think of right and wrong in the academic sense. Correct is absolutely what we're aiming for. And I hope that comes across clearly because, yeah, we want correct. We want people who understand and we measure understanding. Makes sense. It comes across. If someone is listening to this, perhaps a young person, and they're thinking, oh, I rather like the sound of the kind of research and the kind of work that you do, how would you encourage them to get into your line of work? I think with anything, it's, it's you understand the tools. You understand those basic fundamental things. And the fundamental things of economics, of the research we do, are not the fundamentals of mathematics. It's not like you need to be able to do advanced calculus. One of the great things about today's economist is they are dealing with computers that do. You know, when I went to university, we were told to be grateful for cal- calculators, scientific calculators. Yeah, now you can laugh and we can laugh because that makes me sound old. But we should have been grateful for those because the generation before me, and I was at university for 20 years ago now, 20 years before that, didn't have that. Um, so increasingly, it's not about that. It's about being open and starting to think and being critical. And as I said from the start of the podcast, you know, you've got to think about economists as conveying value and understanding and the human element. And so if you want to get into the line of research that I'm doing, yes, you've got to be aware of the tools. You've got to be aware of what the computer is doing, but you really need to open your mind a little bit. And as academics, that's what we're here to do. We're here to give you skills and give you tools, but give you those critical perspectives that you then take out and by all means argue with us. Well, all of that is very thought-provoking. We've run out of time, uh, but thank you very much indeed. Uh, If you want to find out more about Simon's research, you can visit his staff profile page at Swansea University's School of Management webpage. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. In the next episode, we are joined by Dr. Gavin Bunting and Dr. Matthew Davis to talk about their research on the circular economy and the reuse of materials and products. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and thank you again to our guest, Dr. Simon Rubkin. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. I'm Sam Blacksland and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.